Okay, for those of you joining us just now at home, we're glad that you've uh, joined us in that way this morning. We look forward to uh, looking into the Word and sharing together with you as well. We've had an awesome time here already in the Lord's house, fellowshipping with one another and singing and, uh, and praying together. We look forward to the time you can come join us in that endeavor also. In the New Testament times, uh, a part of what they would do in their worship experiences was, was a public reading of the Word. Uh, and at one point, it, you even remember, I think it's in the book of Timothy, where Paul told Timothy not to neglect the public reading of the Word. We don't do a lot of public reading of the Word anymore. We read a verse and then go from there. Uh, expository and exegetical preaching has sort of been the dominant thing now in our culture for a long time. I still like to preach narrative sermons and use bigger uh, volumes of text sometimes. Uh, the assumption is that now we all have Bibles and access to them that they didn't have. And so we're reading it at home. And we don't need to read these uh, the scripture quite the way they did uh, once upon a time. Most of us have five different translations at home, if not more. And if you don't, don't and want one, all you've got to do is this, you know, the little click thing and their Bible's readily available. But I'm, I'm thinking that sometimes we miss something just by not doing a public reading, more public reading of the word sometimes. Here, we do that generally speaking at Easter, where we read bigger volumes of scripture to look at the Easter story. And then at Christmas, we look at bigger volumes of scripture to put together the whole Christmas story. But uh, the text this morning comes from a little book in your Bible, a letter that Paul wrote to Titus. And in my Bible, it's a whole two pages long. And so uh, I thought it might be appropriate to uh, just launch in and read the whole book for you instead of just the four verses that I want to look at. Uh, part of that is because it's just a good letter. And it just, it's going to speak to you the way you would expect the Word of God to speak to you. And so, if you can stay awake long enough to hear the reading here, God will have spoken to you this morning. He speaks through the reading of His Word, then you can go to sleep during the sermon part whenever I get to preach it, right? And you'll walk away today saying, it was good to be in the house of the Lord. Maybe we should do more of this. Because you can't go wrong with the Word of God. So let's look at it. Paul is writing to Titus. Titus is on the island of Crete. And he is there um, just trying to strengthen the churches that Paul left him there to work with. And so that's enough background. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Christ Jesus for the faith of God's elect and the knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. A faith and knowledge resting on the hope of eternal life, which God who does not lie promised before the beginning of time. And at his appointed season, he brought his word to light through the preaching entrusted to me by the command of God, our Savior. Now, I probably should have stated this beforehand. I did not give this part of the sermon to uh, Michael and Amanda. So if you're watching online and you don't have a Bible, kick your feet back up and just listen and try to listen attentively. And if you have a Bible, drag it out and follow along. I am reading from the NIV, and it probably will not match your NIV. I prefer the pre-2011 NIV before they updated it, revised it, and messed it up, in my opinion. But anyway, I'm 
I'm, uh, I'm pre that. So, all of that said, some of you were looking very strange, like, what's here? Where is it at? What are we doing? You know, so anyway, I don't know if you'll have that at home or not. To Titus, my true son in our common faith. Do you have any of those? Grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. For this reason, I left you in Crete that you might strengthen or straighten out rather what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. So here it is. An elder must be blameless, the husband of but one wife. A man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. Since an overseer is entrusted with God's work, he must be blameless. Not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. But rather he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, and one who is self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught, so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. For there are many rebellious people, mere talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcised group. They must be silenced because they are running, ruining whole households by teaching things they ought not to teach. And that for the sake of dishonest gain. Even one of their own prophets has said, Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. And this testimony is true. I had to laugh when I read that. I thought, Paul, are you doing some profiling there? Therefore, rebuke them sharply so that they will be sound in the faith and will pay no attention to the Jewish myths or to the commands of those who reject the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are corrupt and do not believe, nothing is pure. They claim to know God, but by their actions, they deny him. They are detestable and disobedient and unfit for doing anything good. You must teach what is in accord with sound doctrine. Teach the older men to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled, sound in the faith, in love, and in endurance. Likewise, teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live, not to be slanderers or addicted to too much wine, but to teach what is good. Then they can train the younger women to love their husbands and children to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home and to be kind, to be subject to their husbands so that no one will malign the word of God. Similarly, encourage the young men to be self-controlled in everything set an example by doing what is good. In your teaching, show integrity and seriousness, soundness of speech that cannot be condemned so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about you. Teach slaves to be subject to their masters in everything, to try to please them, not to talk back to them, 
and not to steal from them, but to show that they can be fully trusted so that in every way they will make the teaching about God our Savior attractive. Isn't that a powerful statement? Do we make the teaching about God attractive? For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. While we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own eager to do what is good these then are the things that you should teach encourage and rebuke with all authority do not let anyone despise you remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities to be obedient to be ready to do whatever is good to slander no one to be peaceable and considerate and to show show true humility to all men at one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of righteous things that we had done, but because of His mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and the renewal by the Holy Spirit whom he poured out on us generously through Christ Jesus, our, our Savior. So that having been justified by grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. Now, this is a trustworthy saying. And I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. But avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and arguments and quarrels about the law because these are unprofitable and useless. Warn a divisive person once and then warn him a second time. After that, just don't have anything to do with him. You may be sure that such a man is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. As soon as I send Artemis Tychus Kius, Tychius, how you say that, to you, do your best to come to me then, because I have decided to winter in, uh, I skipped, uh, yeah, Nicop how you say it, Nicopolis, I like it, Nicopolis, you've been there, huh, Owen, no, Do everything you can to help Zenos, the lawyer and apostle, uh, and Apollos on their way and see that they have everything they need. Our people must learn to, be, to devote themselves to doing what is good in order that they may provide for daily necessities and not live unproductive lives. Everyone with me sends you greeting. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. I want us to look this morning at that fifth trustworthy saying in the third chapter. It begins here in Titus 3.3. 3. 
At one time you were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. This just describes our lost position. Fallen mankind in a fallen world. We have no hope in attaining, in obtaining a righteousness that could restore us to the kind of relationship that we had with God that was there at the beginning of time, long ago lost in the garden. In fact, what we can expect from God because of the world that we live in and the nature that we're born with and the sinfulness that we choose is to face instead the wrath of God. And we do not talk much about the wrath of God anymore. We stress his love and we have an awfully hard time understanding that. And we're going to look at his love in a minute. But I think that it might be wise and prudent for us for a minute this morning to take an opportunity to just remind ourselves of another side of God's nature and character as well. So let me read to you a few passages of scripture. As if you haven't heard enough already. Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. First for the Jew and then for the Gentile. For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written. The righteous will live by faith. Now listen carefully. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the ungodliness or all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. There is a wrath of God against godlessness and wickedness, against those who sur suppress the truth by their wickedness. Now you need to ponder that a minute. Since what, since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God made it plain. To everybody how for since the creation of the world God's invisible qualities his eternal power his divine nature his divine nature have been clearly seen being understood from what has been made so that men are without excuse that is an incredible verse you're not going to stand before the heavenly father in your lost and fallen state and be able to use all of what you would like to use as an excuse because God has said you should have been able to see, know, and seek me and understand something about me from creation itself. And man, oh man, does creation not scream about the invisible qualities, the eternal power, and the divine nature of God. I'm going to be teaching this week in uh, the Christian school and I'm going to be teaching about honeybees. Can you possibly imagine how from a honeybee I might be able to point out some invisible qualities about the eternal power and the divine nature of God there is no end to the stuff that you can point out it screams to you about this God who created it you're without excuse and there, there waits for you a divine wrath in Colossians 3 and 5, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because, because of these, the wrath of God is coming. The wrath of God is coming. 
You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must rid yourself of all such things, such as anger and rage and malice and slander and filthy language from your lips. You must leave the shower door in place. Sorry, you had to be here for the whole service to get that online, people. Do not lie to each other. Since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self with its, which is being renewed in the knowledge and in the image of its creator. Romans 2 and 5. But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. God will give to each man according to what he has done to those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality. He will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil. First for the Jew, then for the Gentile. But glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good. First for the Jew, and then the Gentile. God does not show favoritism. Romans 12, 19. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. One of my favorite, Ephesians 5 and 3. But among you, there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. For of this you can be sure, no immoral, impure, or greedy person. For such a man is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of such things, God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Therefore, do not be partners with them. We don't like to talk much about that. Is that enough? You convinced? That there's a wrath of God out there that we probably don't want to be standing on the other side of? I like the question, if there's a... <clears throat> A loving God, how can he allow such wickedness in the world? I think one reason he lets wickedness go as long as it does is because he doesn't want anyone to have to face his great wrath. Ponder that a minute. You've never done that as a parent. You just didn't want to deal with your kids because you knew what they were doing and what it really required to straighten it out. You ever done that? Have you ever heard the phrase that there's going to be hell to pay? You reckon that has a theological base to it somewhere? It's true. We stress the love of God so much sometimes that we fail to mention his divine wrath. I think we err sometimes when we believe that the wicked are getting away with murder. There's a wrath of God coming, folks. I've always wanted to be able to take people on a field trip to hell. I haven't been able to work that out, but I always thought that would be just one amazing field trip to make. 
I think if we could spend one minute, just one minute in hell, I believe that we would know that the wicked don't get away with anything. Facing God's wrath as seen in the torment of hell might change the questions that we would ask. And maybe the question now would be, how can a righteous, just, and loving God allow people to suffer such torment in an eternal hell when all they did wrong was you fill in the blank? Filling in with the most hideous sin that you can think of. And put your own name in the blank. And put your most hideous sin there. I can hear now people saying, well, you know what? I'm just not that bad. All I did was just watch a little pornography. Yeah. And in doing that, you promoted sex trafficking, abduction of women and children, enslavement, abuse, and murder. Oh, yeah, right. No, you're right. You don't deserve an eternal hell. We deserve worse than that, don't we? Isn't that really what we, when we get down to it, isn't that what we think? The problem, I think, so often is that we never really understand the long and far-reaching effects of our sin. In 2 Samuel 12 and 14, it talks about they're the enemies of God in a place where they were holding contempt for God because of the sin that David had committed. So I think that the consequences of our sin not only have fingers that reach beyond the time frames that we think they do and beyond the scope of what we can see, but they also, I think they reach even into the heavenly realm in ways that we do not understand. The gravity and the weight of sin, somehow or another, we have glossed over in a way uh, that I think is, is scary and deadly. And there is a wrath of God on the other side for those who reject God's only chosen plan to avoid this wrath. So he says our lost position is bad news, but it meets God's kindness, love, and mercy, which brought us salvation. In Titus 3 and 4, it says, But when the kindness and love of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. Is there value in reminding ourselves of these things? If we made a, a field trip to hell, do you think it might change the righteous way you live tomorrow? For that matter, just to stand in the presence of a holy God would probably change us immensely in the way we looked at the little transgressions in our life. Isaiah says, woe to me, I'm a man of unclean lips and I live in the people in a land with a people of unclean lips. That's the best he could come up with. If I'm standing in the presence of God, I've got a list that's way bigger than that. But you look at that and that was enough for him to say in the presence of God, I deserve the wrath of God. I don't think we teach that or preach that or hold that out enough anymore. I think we gloss over that. There used to be a day when we preached hell, fire, and brimstone stuff. I don't do that. 
with sinners in the hands of the angry God was a pretty effective sermon. And we need to remember that there is that side to God's nature and character, and we forget that sometimes. But he also has this other side that we don't understand either, this side that is described here is kindness, this love of God. And it's not the righteousness that we did or the merit that we had that made him pour it out, but it was just in him, his mercy. Just like God has this wrath and is just, and that justice demands that wrath, there is also this loving side to God that wants to provide mercy and give mercy, and he does in Christ Jesus. <coughs> in Lamentations 3.22, When you and I are looking at the wrath of God and the judgments that should fall, fall upon us and our sinful position, we come across verses like Lamentations 3.22 that says, Because of God's great love, we are not consumed, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. This is not a sermon that you, you really need to give it some comp contemplation. You need to think about it a little bit. God's nature, his character is more than one attribute. In its perfection, it's all in perfect balance. His justice, his mercy, his wrath, his restoration, his patience, and yet he's never slow to act. How can you put it together? Love beyond our comprehension but this never trumps his justice. It never trumps his righteousness. If it did, he wouldn't be God. He would be some mutation of an out of balance, of an out of balance character like us. Our lost position meets God's kindness and his love and his mercy, which brought us salvation. He says here, through the work of Christ Jesus, our Lord, Attested to by the Father and the Spirit. Look at it in the next verse. He saved us through the washing of rebirth. That's a reference uh, to baptism. Not that baptism saves us. Paul's using the, the, the picture here of what is outward that is reflecting what is inward that has happened. It's, it's, it's that regeneration and the renewal by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is involved in the whole process. The daily renewal that comes to us afterwards. Yes, but none of us could have come to Christ Jesus without the work of the Spirit in our lives. He draws us. And that's Jesus made that very clear. He said, you wouldn't have come to me if it hadn't have been that the Heavenly Father hadn't have drawn you and pulled you, wooed you by His Spirit. He's still doing that today. Whom He poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior. Once Jesus came and we give our life to the Lord Jesus Christ, the indwelling of the Spirit becomes universal for all who are in Christ Jesus. It was not that way in the Old Testament. The pouring out generously through Christ Jesus our Savior of the Holy Spirit. So that having been justified by His grace, you might become heirs having the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy saying. This is the gospel. This is John 3. In reply, Jesus declared, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of heaven unless he is born again. <coughs> How can a man be born when he's old? Nicodemus asked. Surely he cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born. And Jesus answered, 
I tell you the truth. No one can enter the kingdom of God unless he's born of the water and the spirit. That's what Paul is talking about here. <coughs> flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. And so it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. We must be born again. The Spirit draws, the Spirit testifies to the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ and the work that he did is sufficient to, think about this for a minute, to take the wrath of God in such a way that you and I don't have to face it. And what was going on on Mount Calvary in totality, I don't understand. When God turned his face away, what was happening, I don't understand in totality. I I just know that in that moment on Mount Calvary, all the wrath of God that should have been ours because of the sinful persons that we were and our rejection of the very nature that we were created in the image of God, our rejection of all that was God as we made sin, self, and Satan the rulers of our life and the wrath that should have fallen on us because of all of this landed on Jesus. talked to a, way, a, a lady a while back and I don't even remember who it was. I hope it wasn't here in this congregation, but it was a few weeks ago. She was just she was just saying she had had a time one time visiting uh, the Holy Land where she stood at the cross and uh, um, as she stood there, she said I felt the weight of God's wrath upon me. She said I felt like I was taking some of that on myself and I just said yeah, Jesus took the wrath and the weight of God's the wrath on that cross. I'm not sure you even want to step into that. I'm not sure you can even fathom that. And she said, well, yeah, maybe in some small way. Maybe in some small way. What a gift. That God in his love and mercy would figure out a way to save his character with which is justice as well and righteousness and pour out his wrath on the innocent who willingly would take it upon himself so that you and I could go free and never face the wrath of God. Did you, did you grab that? I have passed from darkness unto life. And Paul says that we have the hope of eternal life and the knowledge really here that in that, the wrath of God, we will never have to face. Now, that doesn't mean there's going to not be a judgment of believers works where we're going to be we're going to be challenged with the crowns that we're going to be receiving to lay at the Savior's feet. But you're never going to have to face the wrath of God that Christ Jesus took on Mount Calvary for us that keeps us lost. Paul says, don't you quit preaching this stuff. He says, Titus, you keep holding up the work of the Lord Jesus Christ who died on Mount Calvary for a lost and dying world. You keep holding up 
where you were before you knew Christ. And you keep showing people the love and the mercy of God that provided a way for them to have eternal life. Is that a trustworthy saying? Is that worth stressing? Well, if we don't, we're going to be impoverished in the church. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you again for your word. An incredible work of Christ Jesus. My mind cannot fathom the heavy hand of a perfect God against the iniquity of mankind. If it was just poured out equitably in righteousness and in justice, what we deserve is mind-boggling. And that your son would take that on Calvary for us. No wonder the word calls those who would refuse it fools. To choose anything less than to just step in to the greatness of the gift of eternal life that Jesus provides. That his work made possible is just foolishness. The trust are to hold to anything less, Lord. We can't be responsible for the decisions that others make, but Lord, we can be responsible for our testimony to that truth to the lost and dying world. Let it capture our hearts to be faithful and let it capture the hearts today of all those who are listening that don't know you as Lord and Savior, that they might want to run to Jesus today. Lord, be the Savior of my life. Lord, forgive my sins. Lord, I want to do life with Jesus. Let that be their call today, Lord. Let that be the cry of their heart that they might enter into relationship with you. That your kingdom come, your will would be done in their lives in an amazingly powerful and perfect way if they would just embrace that. Give them the strength and the courage, the wisdom, the understanding, the testimony of your spirit that they would know it's true to be able to do that in this moment. We commit it to you, Lord.